Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 123, recorded March 27th, 2013. So 1994 was a huge Star Trek year. We had a new movie, Next Generation was was very popular, and so was the original Star Trek. So DC Comics came out with specials, and today we'll be covering the two original series specials that came out in spring and winter of 1994. Yes, and they are beefy, and I enjoyed them. They're good. I think a lot of the stories had some meat to them, but you know, I, I won't say that I'll be uh, reading these a second time necessarily, or going out of my way to watch, read them a second time. Right. But they are uh, good. Uh, all four of them, because each, each special consisted of two, mo- uh, two stories. stories. Each story... I wanted to like because it's dealing with something that's very very interesting to me but for whatever reason all of them I could kind of care I had to like slodge through it to get I had to just keep pushing myself to finish it because it just wasn't holding my attention like I like I really wanted it to right uh, a, a good example I feel similarly the first one in particular which had the return of a favorite character or at least some people are favored I, 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 I like the character I love this character I was very happy to see this person come back yes especially when the character dropped off the face of the earth in the <laughs> uh, you know in the comic book series so seeing uh, the return and you know ultimately what happened to her at sleep her I was trying to Avoid saying her. Uh, yeah, you'll see in a few minutes, or you'll hear about it in a few minutes. I, I, I thought that was good. I have more closure with the character. Right. Although I did wish the story was better. Yep, I agree. So I guess we'll just go ahead and jump into that one since that is the first one. Right. Okay. So this is the uh, spring 1994 special number one. The title is Blaze of Glory. The writer is Peter David. Penciler is Rod Wiggum. Arnie Starr is the inker, colors by Phil Allen, letterer Bob Panaha, editor Margaret Clark. The cover is rather generic and does not seem to directly apply to this issue's contents, except to say that Spock, Kirk, and the Enterprise are all in it. Two photos from the Star Trek Taz movies of Kirk and Spock's heads that have been processed in some kind of artsy-fartsy way uh, make up most of the top half of the cover. The Enterprise at high warp that is streaking towards a light source makes up the bottom half. The story opens with a blue shuttle of unfamiliar design that is drifting in space towards a black hole. The sole occupant is sending out a distress call to anyone who could help. The person turns out to be a female and is asking for help no matter what the source or terms due to her dire situation. She thinks for a moment and then says, actually, she'll take help from anyone, except, of course, for... Captain Kirk, exclaims a young officer, who spots the master of the Enterprise walking by him in a public hallway, 
uh, as a lovely female crew woman is attempting to tickle him. Both are embarrassed, but Kirk says it's okay, since they are off duty. All the young officers can say is yes, sir, weakly. Kirk says he understands. He was young once, too, you know. Hard to believe, isn't it? He says to the two. The dumbfounded young office, male officer can just say, Yes, sir. I mean, no, sir. Kirk walks on. Later in his quarters, a young yeoman brings Kirk electronic paperwork to deal with. He takes it from her and can just see yeoman Rand crying and saying, You never looked at my legs. He snaps out of it and sees the real yeoman again. Kirk asks the yeoman to ask Dr. McCoy to swing by as he is dismissing her. Unexpectedly, McCoy is already at the door with Saurian brandy and two glasses. McCoy must be psychic, Kirk observes. Meanwhile on the bridge, Savick reports they are receiving a distress signal that actually calls out Captain Kirk by name. Spock orders best speed to the source of the transmission. Kirk talks to McCoy about how old he is. The fact he has never formed a long-term romantic relationship in all his time seems like a foolish mistake. A wasted life. McCoy points out, of course he did, with the Enterprise. Kirk says she's just a machine. He will grow old and die, and she will go on with a new captain, a new lover. Kirk is called to the bridge and thanks McCoy for the drink and the open ear. Spock briefs Kirk on the ship they are trying to save. It is caught too tightly in the black hole's pull to use tractor beams. It's all down to the transporter. Scotty enters the transporter room to aid Tuchinsky. Kirk and McCoy head down to the transporter room and arrive in time to see R.J. Blaze on the transporter pad. There is some animosity at first, but it's obvious they dig each other's jelly. However, Kirk is acting pretty formal and standoffish as if he is still willing to hold a grudge against R.J. for events of the past. In the end, she thanks Kirk and her crew for saving her, and she leaves for her quarters. Elsewhere in the sector, Lord High Darich is ordering his huge ship to follow the distress call that his minions have identified as being from R.J. Blaze. He says he wants her head on his wall if it's the last thing he does. Later, in an Enterprise briefing room, Kirk, surrounded by his senior officers, asks how Blaze came to be in a crippled Ramaz vessel heading towards a black hole. She tells the story of how she was dispatched to shore up long-running peace negotiations between the Landorians and the Ramazians. Darich, the Landorian leader, was reneging on previous promises and refusing to sign the agreement. In a private meeting, she was finally able to convince Darich to sign the agreement. However, hard feelings over my pressure tactics forced me to leave the area in a hurry. She left in such a hurry, she did not have the time to properly program the nav computer, and the shots Darich took at her ship did not help. After being pressed for an explanation why Darage apparently wanted her dead, she admitted she may have held a gun to his back during the ceremony and forced him to sign. <laughs> Never wanting it known how he let a woman force him to do anything, much less something this important, he wanted me dead. 
Kirk and Blaze get into a shouting match when Kirk tells her she broke the Prime Directive as well as committed assault with a deadly weapon. Blaze calls him a hypocrite on the accusation of breaking the Prime Directive, since he does not all the time. Kirk asks Spock to escort Blaze to her quarters. He asks Sohura to contact Starfleet Command to explain the situation, and asks for further orders. Kirk's personal log records how he pulled a similar stunt as RJ did on Cronian 3. Just like she, he did it to save lives, but bent the Prime Directive to the breaking point. That move led to her being installed as liaison officer to keep an eye on him. Now the situation is reversed, but rather than feeling smug, he feels quite bad for RJ. Kirk's thoughts are interrupted by the two crewmen from earlier in the issue. They want to tell Kirk how they have just decided to get married. Some say they should be putting aside marriage and focusing on their careers, but they want it all. They ask Kirk if they are being selfish. Kirk says no, not at all, with some regret in his voice. Darich arrives in a large battle-ready ship at the black hole where RJ almost went in. They detect the trail of another ship that makes Darich think RJ has not perished by entering the black hole. They follow the ion trail. RJ and Uhura end up having some girl talk over an exercise session. Ohura tries to get RJ to face up to why she ran away from her previous posting on the Enterprise. RJ says she left to help the Landor peace process, not to run away from anything. Ohura leaves RJ with plenty to think about. Kirk and Spock speak to an admiral that informs them Darich has lodged a formal complaint against Blaze. No member of Starfleet is above the law, including Blaze. He says it's up to Kirk to deal with the situation, since he is the officer on site. But he advises that if Darich pushes for a formal request for RJ's return to face charges, he should do it. They sign off and Kirk starts researching legal precedent in matters similar to what RJ is facing. Kirk's research is interrupted by RJ bringing in a fuel consumption report for a yeoman that was at the door. RJ asks Kirk to bring her back to Landor to face up to what she did. Kirk agrees, and they launch into a verbal sparring match that ends in sweet, sweet nookie. On the bridge, Spock receives a report that confirms a Landorian vessel is following them. Spock orders the captain be alerted. He hopes, out loud, that the captain has had sufficient time to probe Miss Blaze's case. Oh my! Spock tells Kirk Darich wants to meet on neutral ground at nearby Nairobi 3. Kirk says there is nothing to meet about. He is not turning Blaze over to him. RJ objects and says they already discussed this. The mini-fight that breaks out is interrupted when the ship is rocked by a half-power shot from Darich's ship. A warning. Kirk gets to the bridge and orders Darich's ship to be hailed. Darich is short in his discussion. He tells Kirk he will beam down to the surface of Nairobi 3 with several of his men. He will either join him to settle this honorably, or a space battle with will ensue. The connection is terminated. Kirk says he and Spock will beam down and meet Darich. Blaze objects, saying she will beam down alone. Kirk tells her she will stay on the ship 
and he will settle this, as he has been empowered to do so by Starfleet. She will stay on the ship, and that is final. Four minutes later, Kirk, Spock, and RJ beam down to the planet's surface to join Darich and his thugs. Darich attempts to forcibly take Blaze, but Kirk will have none of it, and pulls her behind him. Kirk ends up fighting Darich, who is much bigger than Kirk. The captain takes quite a beating, and oddly enough, ends up uh, in another verbal shouting match with RJ. When Darich interrupts their heated conversation, once too many times, Kirk pivots to face him and gives Darich a mighty punch to the jaw. The first convincing blow Kirk's been able to land on the behemoth. Kirk and Blaze go back to their argument, despite the political incident that is hanging over their heads. Finally, Darich is perplexed over this fight between them, and gets so angry, he finally says, Enough! and tells Kirk to take the woman. The worst vengeance he could have on them both is to leave them together. The Landorians beam up. Spock congratulates Kirk and Blaze for their clever plan to convince Darich the best revenge would be to leave them together. Most ingenious. Spock asks who came up with the plan first. Later, as the Enterprise arrives at Starbase 42, Kirk's log reports that charges against RJ have been dropped. They are dropping RJ off to pick up a transport to Earth. Kirk and RJ say their goodbyes for now. They are too combustible to stay together long term, but they both want to see each other when they are in each other's neighborhood. As RJ's teleportation begins, Kirk gives her a heartfelt goodbye, Raspberry Jam. RJ is incensed over Kirk's divulgence of her embarrassing first and middle names. He said he would keep it a secret. As RJ tries and fails to get Kirk to respond to her angry hails, the Enterprise departs the area for their next thrill-packed adventure. The end. Whew! Raspberry Jam. Raspberry Jam. Is that cutesy or what? Yeah. It, when we first started reading these 90s books and, and RJ showed up, I do remember reading this issue way back when out of order so I remembered that her name was Raspberry Jam and when I was reading those earlier books I kind of thought it was cute and I couldn't wait to get to this this story but then upon rereading it and it's been you know five years worth of uh, you know comic books what a it was that's a horrible uh, (laughs) a horrible way to end it I think because it it doesn't pay off you waited five years to find out what her name is, and then it's Raspberry Jam. Yeah, I mean, you didn't know it going you, while we were reading oh, no. the other ones. You didn't know that her oh, name no. was Raspberry. Oh no! And Jam. you said it. You said multiple times in within the show as well as outside of the uh, show recordings. You know what Raspberry Jam stands for? And it's like I had no idea. What RJ stands no. for? Right? Or RJ? Sorry, I had no idea, and I sure as hell wouldn't have guessed Raspberry Jam. <laughs> so it's just you know, in the end. Love Peter David, really good writer. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but I really do think that aspects of the Kirk RJ dynamic, uh, some work and some fall flat. I think the fighting in general falls flat. It's too much the center of their relationship, and I'm kind of sick of it. And then this this cutesy little raspberry jam. It's like something a five year old would say. You know, it's. Yeah, it, I just, I just have such a feeling it could have been better. Right. 
you know. No, all all the little hints in the in the actual stories when they, when they when she was first on the Enterprise, I thought yeah. were you know kind of cute. You know, what is her name? What is her name? And you know, I knew what her name was, but I always thought that it was you know a cute little. Uh, I always thought it was going to pay off in a in in a cuter way than than this ended up. Cuter, being. cuter, Maybe cute or is that more the right clever. Word, Maybe clever, because right. this is overly cute. Right, right, right. But yeah, so I thought it was going to pay off in in a more clever way because um, I was misremembering how the how it all played out. Because right. I, I was kind of surprised that it took this long for her to show back up. I kind of remembered it being. You know, not too long after she left. But I mean, as far as you know, comic books go, she's been gone for you know since since the teens, uh, the issues of of you know like sixteen, seventeen, whenever she left. Mm-hmm. And we're now in what the fifties, uh, sixties. So she's right. been gone a long time. As far as these these issues coming out every month. Yeah, we're up to like sixty six uh, was the right. last one we did, I think. Right. So somebody reading this book, I mean, unless they were following it five years earlier, they're not going to even know who she is. Right. So, anyways. Yeah. I'm glad we finally got to this story. Um, It just, unfortunately, didn't live up to my recollections of it. No. And I agree with you 100%. Uh, Some of the fighting is kind of good. Uh, I like that she puts him in his place, or at least in the earlier issues, she seemed to put him in his place. Uh, here, they just seem to be arguing like a like an old married couple about everything. Yeah. It's like, what was it, the 80s or something? Maybe part of the... I think mostly the 80s. There were a lot of TV series that the humor was all too often based on arguing. I mean, I love All in the Family, but a lot of that was just arguing. And... Right. Uh, you know, I, like I don't always find children. that. <laughs> oh well, that was a classic. You right, can't say that, against that. But that would but. have been popular around this time, right? Early '90s. Yeah, yeah, I guess it is. But but there was a time there where uh, TV was really into finding humor in characters arguing with each other, and there's just so much of that I dig on, and uh, I don't dig on it as much here. I think we've already said that. So, point made. So anyway, so they finally consummate their relationship. Now, that did was... they never consummate that before? I don't think so. Because they definitely consummated in this issue. No okay. two ways about that. Yes. Um, but I, I don't. I didn't recall that they hadn't before. But uh, you may be right about that. Hmm. And what did you think about the little uh, comment when they're getting dressed, and she ah. says? You know, my spine was hurting before, but I think you snapped it back into position. Ah. And he says, my pleasure. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that was a little much, I thought. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Although, even more so... Wait, okay, so, I want you to guess. What do you think my favorite parts of this book are? And there are a couple of them. Um... That are the same kind of thing that pops up in the book twice that I thought was the best part of the book. I don't know, the Ahura the Ahura scenes where they're the girl talk kind of thing? Oh no. Okay. Now visually those aren't bad, but that got <laughs> no, not really. Uh which ones? Spock. Spock is a great straight man. And I thought Spock's 
lines in several places were the most, by far, humorous thing that was in these books, and the best things. So, for example, that one thing, uh, you know, after they did their humana humana, Mm -hmm. and then Spock is, is, is contacting the captain to come up, and his lines talking about, uh, I I hope Captain Kirk has had enough time to probe RJ's case. <laughs> that was very naughty and wording, and I thought it was great. So you know the the, the two meanings. Mm-hmm. You know I, I I'm pretty sure that Spock is is meaning it on the up and up, but uh, I don't know. He could have, obviously he... the two meanings that come into what really was going on just when he was saying those words, I thought was really naughty. Uh, and really funny because he seems to be oblivious. Right. So he's either really clever, which of course we know he's clever, uh, mm-hmm. and humorous, or he's oblivious. And if he's oblivious, then I find it really good. Yeah, it's funny. What was the other one? Uh, the other one was was towards the end. Um, what did Spock say? Uh, oh, yeah, who came up with the plan first? Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> Again, sounding either... Again, he was oblivious <laughs> to the to the fact that the whole thing was totally random chance, um, or he was being incredibly sarcastic. Right. Uh, I think again he was oblivious because I think that's funnier. But I think you're right. Yeah. I think you're right. Yeah. Those are my favorite parts. So can I ask a uh, a question? No. Why uh why was Kirk so hung up on Yeoman Rand? But you're doing it again anyway. What's that? <laughs> Nothing. Uh well in multiple spots I thought they made a point, including the Yeoman Rand part, where Kirk is having regrets over how he's lived his life. Him mm-hmm. him missing the 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 idea of a real commitment, real romance, instead of the flighty one gallon episode kind of life he's been leading. Um yeah, I I think they were really underscoring the idea that he was ready for real love when RJ pops up in his life again. Right, but but what was that scene? Is that scene from something where she says, "You never looked at my legs"? Because oh, it looks like they're in a sale or something, and she, her her clothes are ripped. Is that from an older episode? I think that is actually a a reference. Which episode? I think that's from a Taz episode. Uh, right. Is that is that the one where they might have had that infection in them, where they start talking about uh, what they really think under the surface? I think that uh, might have been it. Okay. Yeah, I, I assume that it was from some episode. I couldn't quite put my finger on it, but yeah. I didn't understand. I mean, he's looking at her picture on the computer screen before the other yeoman comes in, so I didn't quite understand why he was focusing on, on her. Well... And because not like that's... Carol Marcus or ah. uh, the woman from Star Trek Four who came to the future to be with him and right. he just dropped her off and left. I mean, there's other people more recent that he's actually had true romantic relationships with that, I don't know, I think that he would be thinking about them more than Rand, who was his subordinate right. 20-something years ago. Well, I don't know. But that was an opportunity. One of his multiple opportunities that he uh, gave a pass on. Mm. And when I first looked at it with her hair in the basket, uh, waist, upside down waist basket, beehive kind of hairdo, 
I w- when I first looked at it, I was going, what the hell? She can't still have that after all these years. And it's like, oh, it's a photo. Okay, got it. A photo from back in the day. <laughs> yeah, so... Yeah, so I guess he was... Well, maybe because it was easy to look up because she's on... Uh, being a member of Starfleet, she was on file or something. But we found out that uh, that Marcus was a member of Starfleet, too, at one point. I don't know. Right. Yep. Right. I, I don't know. I, I don't... I don't not like it. Don't get me wrong. I just... I thought it was just odd, the choice of person for having for him pining over. Yeah. And quite frankly... Yeoman Rand, oh, I think Kirk looked at your legs a lot. <laughs> yeah, because she would hand him his thing, he would sign it, and then she would have to step up on that step, and I saw his eyes looking. Oh, yeah. Go back to the turbo lift or something. Yeah, oh, exactly. Yeah. Right, yeah. Oh, yeah. You just never saw him, because he's sly. He is the chat. <laughs> da, 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 da. Uh, so on, a, on another note, uh, I kind of mentioned the the exercise session. Yes. Mm-hmm. Isn't that a plot device they use in Next Gen with Troy and Crusher when they all had to, you know, talk about their guy troubles that they would there would always be this scene where the two of them are doing some sort of stretching or some sort of exercise thing on Next Gen? Uh, you're probably right. I don't remember one of those, but I think you're right. Yeah. I just thought it was odd that they would use that same plot device here. Yeah. I mean, in the earlier issues, they did build up that the two of them were friends. Right. That uh, they beamed down to some waterfall or something, and RJ was in her epic uh, <laughs> Sports Illustrated swimsuit, kind of, sort of. Uh, swimming suit, yes. Swimming suit. Yes. Very nice. She was indeed. Yes. Now, I find it interesting on page 18, where O'Hara looks somewhat realistic, you know, kind of thick, because she was pretty pretty up there by this point. Uh, so she's in her uniform, and she looks toward on the bottom of page eighteen. She looks, you know, probably not that far off. Maybe a little thinner than she was in reality in the by that point in the movies. But um, then when they show her in her workout, little skin tight leotard kind of thing, even though she's got the purple kind of like little bandana thing around her waist or whatever, that is just not realistic. <laughs> In her in doing the back arch thing. Well, that too. But I'm just right. saying she really looks a lot thinner. Well, I'm saying she looks really thin when she's doing the arch. Back thing. arch, yeah. Right. Yeah. That and there's no way Nichelle Nichols could do that back then. I'm pretty sure. I don't know. You saw her doing the little dance thing in Star Trek Five. Oh God. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty easy when all you're doing is standing behind some ostrich feathers or whatever. Plus, I, I really don't think that was her. Nah, it could have easily had a body double. Double, right. yeah. Who knows? Yeah. I, I was being facetious. Yes. Uh, my last comment is the, the fight the fight scene. Uh, I really hated the uh, resolution to that. The, at the end, the fight deserve, scene at the end. You guys deserve each other. Right. Yeah. It's contrived. Right. You know, it's and and I think we've seen things akin to this many times before, and probably Nickelodeon TV shows. So you know, it's like it's not the kind of thing that we haven't seen really before. Um, so it isn't really unique, but yeah, 
whatever. It's cutesy. It's like it's like light entertainment, and I, I think that's just what this was meant to be. Right. A nice little light show. Nobody dies, you know. Right. Although his honor, the alien's honor, is never satisfied, but he he just gives up. So he still right. has to go back in dishonor. That's right, big boy. That's right. And by the way, he is really big. It's like Kirk's, you know, Kirk's clenched fist is like less than half the size of this guy's clenched fist. It's like oh, he's a monster. Yeah. The idea that Kirk could have done anything to knock him on his butt seems pretty fracking unlikely. Watch the fracking. Sorry. So, but you said it too. You said it too. Anyway. All right. Anything else? I got nothing else on this one. All right. Let's move on. Let's do. So, story two in this issue is The Needs of the One. Writer and penciler, taking both duties on this one, is Michael Collins. Terry Pallet is inker, colors by David Graffy, letterer Bob Panaha, editor Margaret Clark. The story opens on Vulcan 15 years earlier. Spock is in the final ceremony to attain Kolinar and finally shed himself of all emotions. As in the early minutes of Star Trek The Motion Picture, Spock is distracted from attaining what he had thought he wanted and worked so hard to achieve. His answers are elsewhere, and he leaves. A high priestess, whose face is partially concealed, speaks to the female Vulcan master, who presided over the Kolinar ceremony, saying some day Spock will return to them. Fifteen years later, the scene returns to Vulcan, in the time period at the beginning of Star Trek IV, when Kirk and the core members of his bridge crew are with him and looking over their stolen Klingon ship, the Bounty. Spock's Katra has been returned to him. Sarek departs to speak for Spock's friend that risked... Spock's Katra has been returned to him. Sarek departs to speak for Spock's friends that risked everything to save him. Scotty is working on repairing damage to their Klingon ship. McCoy and Scotty make plans to retire to a quiet area and take part in some relaxing drinking. Spock continues in his studies and is joined by his mother. They discuss Spock's half-brother named Cybok. They discuss how Cybok was disowned by Sarek when Cybok embraced a bohemian lifestyle that craved unbridled emotion as its central tenant. When Spock joined Starfleet, Sarek again felt that his only remaining son had turned on him. Kirk meets with Sarek before he leaves for Earth to plead for their case. He tells Kirk Spock will not be leaving with Kirk. Later, towards night, Spock goes missing. Spock is taking dangerous chances in the Vulcan wilderness. He finds a wild lion-like beast called a Salat that he mistakes as a childhood pet named Aichaya. In the end, he ends up fighting with the lion side by side to protect its family against a pack of predators. He says the lion was defending his family against predators, as Sarek would protect him. As Spock makes this realization, a red-robed figure can be seen in the distance watching over Spock. Chekhov comes to the cell of the Klingon Maltz, where he's being detained, to tell him that he will be extradited back to Klingon space. 
Malth says, The weak Federation swine have no idea the shame he will face for not dying. He attempts to not only escape, but to kill Chekhov. Chekhov takes the Klingon down with a mighty punch, saying Captain Spock is worth ten Klingon scum like Maltz. Five hours into their search for Spock in the wilderness, Kirk and his company come upon a ripped chunk of Spock's robe on a tree branch near the Salat Den. No sign of Spock himself. Spock is reliving his fight with Kirk. Kirk realizes Spock is heading for Kunat Kalafi, the site of Kirk and Spock's fight to the death many years before. At Kunat Kalafi, Spock is reliving his fight with Kirk for the hand of T'Pring, right down to the point when he is strangling Kirk and getting ready to kill his friend and captain. It is only Sabak's scream for Captain Spock to stop that snaps Spock out of it only to realize that he is actually strangling Admiral Kirk in the here and now. Meanwhile, Scotty and McCoy are partaking of a Klingon drink that is molecularly similar to whiskey, but tastes awful to McCoy. Scotty says, have a few more drinks. It grows on you. They go on to discuss Scotty's death and resurrection at the hands of Nomad so long ago, and what parallel experiences Spock could have experienced in his death and resurrection. They speak of the death of the Enterprise, and drink a toast to the old girl, and to Dr. McCoy, and to Scotty, and to Captain Kirk. Elsewhere in the wilds of Vulcan, Sulu, Savik, Kirk, and Spock are making their way through a nasty storm to find shelter. In the cave, Kirk helps to fill gaps into Spock's memory. Kirk brings him up to speed on the major events of the first two Star Trek movies, right up to his death that was brought on by the villain Khan. Kirk says Spock has been through a lot, and that no one would think any less of him if he decides to stay on Vulcan. Spock says he does not know what he wants to do. The last stop they make is at the high plateau of Gaul, the site of the Kolinar. Meanwhile, word comes to Spock's mother of where Spock is. She, McCoy, and Scotty board a shuttle to go there with all dispatch. On the plateau of Gaul, Spock finds T'Pring, his betrothed, who is now a matriarch and overseer of the Kolinar. She tells him the decisions he has made and how they shape who he is. A shuttle lands and from it disembarks Spock's mother, McCoy, and Scotty. McCoy tells everyone they just received word that they need to get back to Earth to stand trial for their misdeeds. With everyone gathered, Spock asks Kirk if he can join them on their trip to Earth. Kirk says, of course, and welcome back. The end. What'd you think? I thought it was a nice little story that fills in a little bit more detail in what happened at the beginning of Star Trek IV. Mm -hmm. Uh, However, I will say that I really don't need to know any of this. But <laughs> fine, okay, cool. It's okay. Yeah, that's fine. Give me a little more details. That's fine. Right. That's what I think. I, I thought it was kind of like someone's effort to, you know, do a a retcon type thing. So we have all these stra- strands of plotline and try to tie them up so that we can, you know, acknowledge that Spock knew of Cybok before Star Trek Five. We can mm-hmm. kind of find out what happened to to Prang and tie in some of the animated series with the little uh, Shilat type creature. Right. So, 
all that was interesting, um, and what happened to the Klingon at the end of Star Trek Four. But right. I liked it as far as that goes. And then it was just like all the other stuff just seemed kind of tacked on with Ahura talking about how you know she had her mind wiped or whatever, and yeah. and uh, Scotty dying. Right. Just uh, I don't know. Seemed like it was padded a little bit. <clears throat> Filler, as it were. And again, those are both two references to another episode. So again, it was like they were trying to tie in all these random events into one cohesive story. Right. Which, some of which were pertinent, and others were a bit of a stretch. Like, for instance, the idea that Scotty had, had died at the hands of Nomad. I completely forgot about that. I, I didn't remember that. Yeah, now that's the episode, The Changeling, right? Right. Right. Now, wasn't that kind of like Star Trek the motion picture where it was like a a probe or something that yeah that thought Kirk was the creator kind of like the way Viger right. thought he was yep. the creator yep there were definite there were definitely themes there that were being retreaded in the mm. motion picture yes yeah now I remember Ahura losing her memory in that one or something she had to relearn English or something which is kind of sucks if you're a communications officer, but I didn't remember S- Scotty dying. So how no, did they, I didn't how did they bring either. him back to life? Well, I think Nomad just was ordered to bring him back to life, and Nomad being a fix-it robot, whatever, is able to fix Scotty. Uh, and I, I, thought, I thought the whole thing was weak, but whatever. And I, I almost remember, so a beam of light comes out of Nomad or something, and then Scotty's all well again. It's like, oh my god. Yeah, I don't remember that. I remember, I think it was something like that. Is that a third season episode or second season? I think it's more like second season. So the whole idea of Nomad being some kind of probe and then is fixed up or whatever and then comes back, it's like, uh, that is exactly the motion picture. Only the cool thing is by the time the motion picture actually happened, we had Voyager. So we actually had like a real example of something that man did actually send out into the cosmos beyond, well, it was... It hadn't gone beyond the solar system yet, but it has now, which is cool. Right. So there was an actual concrete example to include, but I don't think it was quite. I don't know if it's quite good enough excuse to retread the idea in your first major motion picture that you <laughs> hope will be a long-running uh, string of movies. So. Right. Well, that was the pilot episode for Star Trek Phase Two, which was going to be the new TV yeah. series. Right. Yeah, so I don't know why Which, they retread. I, and I, to be honest, I had forgotten that the Changeling and Star Trek the Motion Picture were so much alike. Right. So, right. in that regards, I thank go. this comic book for reminding me. Thank you, comic book. Another thread that I thought was kind of interesting at the very beginning is where they make reference to Dr. Brandon Nichols, who in 1976, or not the beginning, but during Spock's training, mm-hmm. the guy that invented transparent aluminum. Right, yeah. That was, so I that thought that was, was kind of a, a nice little nod. Right. To Star Trek. Well, what's going to happen later in Star Trek Four? But right. Uh, again, it, it this was written as if you know somebody you know obviously a fan of the series mm-hmm. and, and well versed in Star Trek, just wanted to tie up a whole bunch of loose ends to kind of make right. it feel like a more cohesive package, which right. is what I always want to do. You know, the whole. I mean, in that regards, hat hat off to you. But yeah, some of it wasn't necessary. Right. I, I really like the Cybok. I liked her, um, you know, Amanda talking about Cybok um, right. and giving his backstory, you know, a better backstory than what we get in Star Trek V. Right. So, anyways. 
Um, I was not crazy in the art department. I was not crazy about how they decided to uh, use no coloring on people's skin. Mm-hmm. So everybody was stark white. That just kind of distracted me a little bit. So I, I wasn't crazy about that, that artistic decision. But right. whatever. I mean, it's perfectly valid, you know, whatever. But I just, right. I just thought that was a little yeah. weird. Everybody looks like Data except for yes. Klingons and Ahura. Yeah. And Sulu. Did they make him yellow? Yeah, they make him yellow. Oh, God. Really? Huh. Okay, good point. So, anyways. So, Caucasian people all get to be stark white. Right, they all look like Data. Yeah. So, speaking of Data, I just recently saw Best of Both Worlds on the big screen. Uh, really? Here. Have you Have you did that? Have you done that? Yeah. Wow, so, that's great. Uh, as the time of the recording, we... we just uh, had the uh, the third Fathom Events uh, Blu-ray special. I don't know what is it. It's more like a big giant commercial that you pay thirteen bucks to go see. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for the Blu-ray release, right? Yeah, right. but you but but they do show uninterrupted because I didn't see it unfortunately. Unfortunately, it was sold out at my local theater. Yeah. So, uh, so I mean, they did show the whole two-part series edited together beautifully uh, with upgraded special effects, right? So you got right. to see the whole thing in its full glory. Uh, yes, which, okay. unfortunately, I think it causes it to lose a little something. When they oh, edited, really? Because all they really did was cut out the the four seconds of music, the bum, 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 and it kind of... Oh, I love that part. I do, too. So what he does is fire, and then it fires, and nothing happens, and then you're like, boy, that was kind of anticlimactic. I mean, considering that when you watched that when you were a kid, you had to wait four months to find out what happened with that <laughs> right? That fire. And then, you know, immediately you find out that it doesn't do anything, and it's really anticlimactic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that was a really good cliffhanger. So, and of course, that aspect of the story is totally lost. But yeah, hmm. Interesting. But what I was what I was gonna get at is Data's makeup on the big screen does not hold up very well. Oh really? Yeah, it, that that was my biggest complaint as far as makeup and uh, even costumes go. It's just that I noticed that when I saw the this the they showed the two part for season one um, yeah. Fathom event, right? And I noticed it then, and then <clears> I, it, it really drove home now. I guess because maybe. Brett Spiner was a little older. It does not look all that great. It's kind of clumpy, shiny. Right. Interesting. So, anyways, but uh, and you said the uniforms were, didn't look that good. No, the uniforms look good. I said that oh, was okay. my only complaint. That was my only complaint as far as makeup and uniforms go. Oh, oh, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So, did you spot anything that looked like a improved uh, special effects? Yeah, like when the the Borg ship and the Borg ship's exploding and things like that. All that was uh, an SG. So it, it okay. looked really good. Good. Okay. Well, I've definitely pre-ordered the edited together Blu-ray, so I will be seeing it, even though I missed it on the big screen. Mm. But anyways, so that, that's kind of off off subject a little. Back to this this issue, if if you don't mind. I don't mind. I'm done with my comments, so have at it. Uh, my only last comment was the Klingon here, the mm-hmm. uh, the one they Mulch. captured. Yeah. yeah. He's uh, very vicious looking and doesn't look at all like John Larroquette. 
who played oh Matt right Dion in Star Trek Three. Yes. Yeah, that's that's funny, isn't it? And I just don't see John Larroquette doing this uh, this fighting scene with uh, Chekhov and the Vulcan guards. Yeah. And I definitely don't see Chekhov being able to lay malts out so easily. Well, if it's John Larroquette, I mean, no offense ah! to the actor, he's just not that. <laughs> he's just not that tough. He's just not that tough. He he's a tall he's guy, though. I mean, I mean, Chekhov's a little dude. And yeah, then no. John Larroquette's a pretty pretty tall guy. Yeah, but I can't think of John Larroquette as anything other than Dan from uh, Night Court. Yeah. Yes. He'll he'll that's 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 how I always see him. Now. Well, that's he his greatest role. In other characters. Clearly, that's his greatest role. Well, he was the narrator on Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That might have been his first role. What in the original movie you're saying? Yeah. I did not know that. Yeah. But I. I would have to go and watch it again, but I still don't think it uh, probably compares to his masterful of performance. For what, what, like, Dan. what was it, like seven seasons or something? It was pretty long running for a comedy show. Yeah, it was yeah. great. Yeah, and he was one of the best things about it. Too bad he didn't uh, have success in many other things. Really, just uh, as a Klingon and as Dan. That's really about it. <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. Hmm. All right, that was my last comment. Anything else? Nada. Now we will jump to the winter of 1994 with the release of the special number two. And its first story is called Raise the Defiant. Kevin J. Ryan is the writer. Chris Wozniak and Jeff Holander is the artist. Chris Elipopoulos is the colorist and letterer. And Margaret Clark is the editor. So if you listened to the uh, name of the story, you're going to know what the cover is, but uh, I'm going to talk as if you don't know what it is. So the cover shows a movie-era Enterprise A towing a TV-era Constitution-class ship. So we don't know what that TV-era Constitution-class ship might be. Uh, the detail on these ships is amazing, and the space uh, around them is all top-notch. It's a, it's a fantastic uh, cover. So the story takes place sometime around Star Trek V. On the bridge of the Enterprise, Ahura informs the captain that he has a classified message. He excuses himself and takes the call in his quarters. Later, the Enterprise rendezvous with a Dr. Jurad for a highly classified experiment. When she arrives, she only wants to deal with Kirk, claiming the mission is need to know. Kirk convinces her that all of his senior crew are need to know. So she relents, and she tells them that the Enterprise is going to go to the last known location of the USS Defiant, uh, which everybody remembers happened in the Tholian Web episode. There they will perform the same phase experiment that the Defiant was attempting. They are going to enter the alternate universe that the Defiant is located in and bring it back if at all possible. If not, they're going to destroy the ship and thereby plugging the instability in that region of space. Most of the crew are shocked with all of this news. But Scotty proves that he is a true master of his field and seems to be always one step ahead of Dr. Gerard. He is able to deduce what is needed for each step of the plan. Even though the whole phasing experiment was supposed to be top secret for all these years. 
The crew is now tasked with making preparations for the experiment. Scotty is working with Gerard to get the phase inducer installed, even showing her up a few times uh, when he seems to grasp the nuances of what they're doing better than she does. McCoy is working on adapting Theragon gas to minimize the intoxicating effects. Uh, this gas will be needed to keep the crew from going crazy as the Defiant crew did all those years ago. Spock is charged with working with the Tholians, who will be monitoring the experiment since it's so close to their space. Spock also coordinates with the Tholians to fire at the Enterprise as it's crossing over, just as they did with the Defiant. Once all the preparation is complete, they perform the experiment. They enter an alternate dimension. However, they're unable to find the Defiant. Uh, Scotty says this is due to some sort of feedback loop. Uh, that caused them to overshoot their travel. Scotty suggests that they can try again, and this time he'll lock onto the Defiant and use that to guide them through their cross-dimensional jump. They do so, and they are successful. The Defiant looks just as it did all those years ago. The crew speculate that time must pass at a slower rate here in this dimension. Scotty and a crew beam over to the Defiant to adjust its phase inverter, as the two ships are departing this dimension, a shuttle leaves the Enterprise and starts to attack the Defiant. It is Gerard. She turns out to be a Romulan spy who fears that any information the Federation gains from the Defiant will jeopardize the Romulan Empire. Scotty pleads with her not to fire. She refuses his advice and fires, only to blow up instead. Scotty tells the captain that he suspected that she was a spy and he rigged the shuttle's phasers to explode if fired, just in case. After some readjusting, the Enterprise and the Defiant are able to return to the correct universe. Scotty recommends that the Defiant be placed in a museum. Kirk says that he will pass the suggestion along. The end. That clever chief engineer. Oh yes, he was... I liked the story in that regards, that Scotty actually knows what he's doing and is one step ahead of everybody else. Right. And, you know, if he's being the miracle worker, he should be. <laughs> yeah, the only thing is, I mean, he, he he is very focused on engineering. So it seems like sometimes uh, spies and subterfuge would be the kind of thing that he wouldn't necessarily be uh, normally paying attention to. But I guess what it has to do with his engineering work, uh, where the uh, the clues are unearthed, mm-hmm. I, I guess that's where he has some interest. So, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah. Still sharp after all these years and all those pounds. Why do you always have to bring that up? <laughs> so the guy put on a little weight. Yeah, yeah. So what do you think about the artwork? Not a fan at all. No. Me neither. The cover is so beautiful. Yeah. I mean, if, if I had a poster of that that cover, I probably would hang that up. It looks really nice. Yeah. And then you open up the book and you're just like, what happened? Yeah, so for those of you that don't have the comic, the in the art inside the comic is very stylized. In many cases, unrealistic. You know, it's different. You know, if I give it points for that. Uh, although, you know, quite frankly, if I wanted this style of, like, overly stylized, uh, 
renditions of of what you know of semi reality. You know, I would go out and and buy a, Le- uh, a Leroy Neiman sports lithograph. You know, of uh, uh, you know some sports figure or something. Uh, I don't know if you know, remember Leroy Neiman, but he was very popular there for a while in the 70s, 80s. I don't know what it was, but he used to do all these uh, sports related um, uh, paintings, and they just were over the top. You know, colorful and just unrealistic and very artsy fartsy, and that reminds me of of how they've done this issue. Yeah, I don't know who that is at all. Well, sorry. If you if you look up some of his work, you'll you'll see what I mean. Okay. Anyway, uh, so it was different, but it just it just distracted me from the story because I'm looking at all these different styles and stuff mm-hmm. that they're presenting, and it's like I keep on thinking. Wow, that's an interesting drawing. Instead of thinking, "Hey, there's Kirk talking with the other crew behind him on something," and following the story, I keep on getting distracted by the uh, the wacko drawing. Right, I agree. But but some of it looks nice. I mean, there's some shots with Scotty where he looks pretty cool. Right, but uh, I mean, a lot of times, even like their faces are broader than their. In one shot than they are mm-hmm. in another shot. Right. So, I mean, it's like they're kind of bleeding over into the the panel. Yeah. I mean, it's just an artistic choice, but it just kind of throws me off from time to time. Right. But, and then some, like some of the ships, some of the shots with the ships in it, it has like the Enterprise in there twice. So I wasn't sure. It was like, did they already find the Defiant, or is this two panels in the same? You know, is it two scenes in the same panel? I was a little confused a few times with that. Yeah. Yep. But, yeah. To each their own. Yep. I... Moving on to a different topic, mm-hmm. I it struck me near the beginning where Kirk goes to his quarters to take the For Your Eyes Only transmission from Starfleet. And I'm just I'm just sitting there reading this going... Man, it sucks to be in the old Enterprise. I mean, Picard's got his like little ready room there, his office, mm-hmm. right off the bridge, you know, and it's a really nice one. He's got a fish and everything, and <laughs> he can easily go off and take these kind of things in his office without having slogging his way all the way back to his quarters. It's like, right. kind of sucks. Anyway, no, and, I agree. And, I was thinking the same thing. Yeah, and don't isn't there isn't even one of the conference rooms right off of the bridge? Maybe I'm misremembering that. At the very least, uh, Picard's offices, which right. I think is very cool. Yeah, I, I thought I thought that was a very big difference. I mean, it, the enterprise, the, the normal traditional enterprise, is a pretty big ship. Couldn't they have an office for the captain? I mean, come on. Anyway, uh, I also like the Babylon Five little ad in there. So you know, not the greatest artwork in the world, but it kind of reminds me, uh, takes me back to that time period, seeing the Babylon Five ad, page oh, okay. page size ad. Right, right. Yeah, that ongoing series did not last very long. I think it lasted maybe five issues or something like that. Yeah. So, what did you think about the 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 thrust of the story, them trying to go into another dimension to get the Defiant? I... I, I thought it was a little weak, and I thought it was like one of those uh, technobabble kind of episodes and um, and I'll tell you one thing about this technology when they're talking about 
you know, the possibilities of phase shifting. And it's like the first thing they think of or the first thing Scotty comes up with is the fact that they can see through cloaking device obfuscation. It's like, really? That's the first thing you think of? I mean, if I could jump into a, you know, go out of phase into another dimension and avoid being attacked by three Klingon cruisers, it's like, sign me up. I mean, that's the first thing I would think of, not seeing through cloaking devices. I thought that was kind of odd. <laughs> yeah, now, is this supposed to be the same, um, like, cloaking device that they bring back up in Next Gen, or is this just something that's just for this issue, this phase inducer thing? I don't... Because um, when they talk about the cloaking device that was on the Pegasus, that it kind of sounds more like this than a, a traditional cloaking device, because it actually moved through an asteroid before the cloaking device failed, and it merged with the asteroid. Right. Now, oh, so that's... Okay, I wasn't actually thinking of that episode. Um, but, yeah, I guess so. And but I the way think they of describe that... it here is what... That's what made me think of that that episode. Right. But they were talking about seeing through a cloaking device, detecting ships that used a cloaking device, not using it as a cloaking device. Okay. And and what you're talking about reminded me of that episode where Jordy was out out of phase. And nobody could see him, but he could see everybody. Jordy, Ensign Rowe, and a Romulan spy. True. Exactly. But, yeah. you know, I, did, I wasn't going to list everybody. But, <laughs> and, yeah, so that's, that's, that's the next-gen episode I was thinking of. Right. But, right. Um, but, yeah, think of all the possibilities if you could do that safely. I mean, you, you could be out, outgunned, and you could pop out to a different dimension, and then maybe if you had enough control over it, pop back in behind the, the other ships. It's like, oh, there's all kinds of possibilities. Right. But do you think the number one application of this technology is so you can see other ships using a cloaking device? Wow. Okay. Just doesn't seem right. like it's thinking very big. but Yeah, and think about all the prime directive things you're breaking there. So, I mean, if you make a big deal about showing yourself in a planet or to a civilization... Uh, even a spacefaring civilization that hasn't had first contact yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, think about how much damage you would do if you were popping into different universes and showing yourself to oh in other dimensions of that, uh, oh. of that universe, right? Oh, okay, yeah, that's yep. So yeah, I don't know. Yeah, the whole idea of it going to a different dimension and being able to pop in there and pop out. I mean, dimensional travel should be unique to you know big events. I mean. The defiant disappearing that that makes sense, you know. The not makes sense, but I like it. Right. But they don't do it all the time, and they didn't really have any control over it. Same thing with the mirror universe. You know, I like it when it just happens, and they don't really right. have any control. Right. Yeah, because I think uh, I think having this kind of technology is kind of dangerous. But right. Well, now they got two of them, and they're heading off to Starfleet with it, and I'm sure it'll show back up someday. <laughs> Or not. <laughs> or not. Exactly. Or not. Uh, so so it's maybe this shows up again in that uh, Pegasus episode? No, I don't think so. Okay. Well, they did maybe, something. I don't know. To I mean, come it in and, similar. Right. All right. 
Okay, so um, I thought the two-page drawing of the Enterprise entering the phase shift on pages 20 and 21, I thought mm-hmm. that was pretty cool. Pretty cool drawing. With the lightning and stuff, yeah. Right. So that was one of the, one of the examples of the artwork in the book that I, I thought was pretty cool. Mm. Yeah, it's good. I like it. Um, something that struck me at the beginning when they were talking about doing all this is why are you re- risking an entire starship with hundreds of people on board to recreate the Defiant experiment, which you know you lost the ship in all hands. Right. I agree with you 100%. Couldn't you you do this in a shuttle? Or if you really needed to do it in something that could generate enough power, like a starship with their warp engines, Mm -hmm. couldn't you get the people off the ship instead of having, or at least have a skeleton crew or something? Skeleton crew, absolutely. It's like, why are you... You're, you're, it seems like you're unnecessarily risking a lot here. I agree. I thought the same thing. Yeah. yeah. Thought the same thing. And, I mean, is this woman supposed to be... Is that the real plans that the Federation had? Or is this some sort of Romulan plan? You know, because she says that she captured the real Dr. Jared, or Gerard, whatever her name is. Um, but do we even know if these were the real plans? Um, and... Is she a Romulan or is she a Romulan sympathizer? Because she looks I, human. She looks human, but I just assume she had her ears bobbed. But <laughs> I don't know. Right. It, it's not like taking a Klingon and making him look human. It's a little e- a little easier with. Uh, yeah. Well, they never show her ears. Romulans. Right, but. But you, you think know, the transporter would know much. it when you're like transport one over? Oh, oh, Captain, you do know she's a Romulan, right? Oh, well, I did not know that. <laughs> <laughs> but lay that Thanks, order, for, <laughs> thanks for telling us, <laughs> transporter. And then the transporter starts having a, a an anthropomorphic voice that comes up and saying, "Excuse me, uh, Scotty, did you realize? Uh, oh, thank you, transporter." <laughs> so, but but here, yet another Romulan spy thrown into the mix unexpectedly to gum up the works. It's like, man, they are some devious people, these Romulans. Indeed. Hmm. Hmm. Alright, and my last comment was you know, if I would have read this when it came out, which I did in 1994, I would have liked the story probably better than I like it now because in my mind, we already know what happened to the Defiant. It was sent to the Mirror Universe in the past. (laughs) That Jonathan Archer and that crew of the NX-01 find it. So In the alternate dimension, right? In the mirror universe, right. Yeah. So, like I said, if I would have read this in 1994, obviously I wouldn't have had that complaint, but now that they've made that episode, this one just kind of rings untrue. <laughs> it's just not... <laughs> this is not canon. Sorry. Not couldn't doing it happen. for me. <laughs> no. Yeah, I, I have no more comments on this one. Okay. All right, then the second story in this issue is called A Question of Loyalty. And its writer is Stephen H. Wilson. Penciler is Rachel Ketchum. Inker is Rich Faber. Letterer is Bob Panaha. Colorist, Robbie Bush. And editor is Margaret Clark. So the events in this story take place uh, sometime prior to Star Trek VI. So the story starts with Lieutenant Savick being tasked with commanding a group of cadets who will be performing a training cruise aboard the Enterprise. And one of the cadets is a female Vulcan named Valaris. 
there is a welcome aboard party, and Valeris is being very antisocial and very rude. Savic tries to give her some pointers into human etiquette, but Valeris seems to resent Savic's Romulan heritage and uh, does not heed her advice. So as the party's going on, Valeris is telling everybody, including McCoy, Kirk, Spock, and everybody else, within earshot, how superior Vulcans are in every way. This does not set well with many of them, including McCoy, who is very outspoken about her. Later, Savick and Spock are escorting Valeris to her quarters. Valeris suggests that Spock join her tomorrow afternoon for some private coaching. This may not be setting well with Savick, because she has a look of concern. Possibly jealousy? In Kirk's quarters, McCoy and the captain are enjoying a drink. McCoy makes the prediction that Valeris is going to one day give them one hell of a ride. A little foreshadowing there. Sometime later, in a simulated situation, Valeris is in command of the Enterprise. Her navigational officer follows her commands perfectly, yet she chastises him for not vocalizing that he checked the internal dampeners before going to warp. Savick tries to stop her from doing more harm with her relationship with her crew, but Valeris refuses to listen and actually is insubordinate to Savick herself. Later, Savick and Valeris have a private talk. Savick tries to explain what she did wrong, but Valeris refuses to listen. Later, the Enterprise receives a hail from the USS Tinian. Their warp engines are about to go critical and the saucer separation is not working. Everyone aboard the ship has lost consciousness due to the radiation. The Enterprise arrives, and Kirk orders Savick and Valeris to beam over and get the saucer separated before the engines blow. Once aboard, Savick's scans show that there are still people in the engineering section. She orders Valeris to wait on detaching the saucer until she can return with the injured crew members. Or she needs to wait until one minute before the engines go critical and then go ahead and perform the saucer separation. Valeris outlines how illogical it is for Savick to do so. Kirk also tries to order her not to go, but Savick turns her communicator off so that she can say she never heard that order. As the minutes pass, and just before Valeris is forced to separate the saucer, the engines suddenly cool off and the whole ship is saved. Savick's communicator comes back on, and she reports that she was able to fix the ship. Once back on the Enterprise, Savick and Valeris have a few more conversations. Valeris explains why she objects to Savick. It is due to her half-Romulan heritage. And, unlike Spock, who was also a hybrid, but he was raised as a Vulcan his whole life, whereas Savick was raised as a barbarian and only later in life devoted herself to Vulcan ideals. Valeris also says that there is no other correct ideals other than those of Vulcan. Valeris also states that Savick only does what Spock wants her to do, kind of like a lost little puppy. Elsewhere, McCoy and Spock have a conversation. McCoy is butting into Spock's personal life and tells him that Savick looks up to him almost like a father figure. And he does not understand why Spock cannot see how he's hurting her by spending all this time with Valeris. 
Later, Savick informs Spock that she will be taking an assignment on another ship. Despite the fact that Spock recommended her for his old job as science officer. McCoy then pops in after Savick leaves and says, I told you so. The end. <laughs> uh, definitely you uh, synopsized it quite briefly there at the end. Yes, indeed. <laughs> I told you so. Yeah, that's what he says. So, so I, 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 I found this story interesting in the fact that you're getting a lot more information about the uh, Spock, Savick, and now Valeris dynamic. Mm-hmm. It's just... What what was the real reason why they didn't just have Savick in Star Trek VI instead of Valeris? Why'd they bring in the new Vulcan? Do, do you know? Uh, yeah, I do know. Uh, I think originally there was going to be Savick. Okay. And then Gene Roddenberry was the one who kind of nixed it uh, because he didn't want her to suddenly become a villain because Valeris ends up being the, the villain. Oh, right. Right, 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 right. So right. he thought that that would be an injustice to the fans of of Savick from sure. part three and four. Of course. Or two, three, and four. Okay, well, that makes more so, sense. And I also, I've also heard that, you know, uh, Robin Curtis wasn't available, so they would have had to recast her yet again, and they didn't anyway. want three people to be playing Savick. Right. But I, the most common explanation I, I've heard is the whole, they didn't want her to become a, a villain. Right. Which I'm glad they did. I, I would yeah. not have liked it if she became a yeah. Romulan spy the whole time, or a Klingon spy, or whatever it was. Yeah, and Valeris is a pretty bigoted jerk in this one. So That's the main reason why I don't like this one. I was really looking forward to this, because you know, it explains why Savick's not there in Star Trek Six. It explains why Valeris is there, and kind of, you know, that whole dynamic, but it ended up being just the two of them bickering the whole time about you know, Savick, you know, you really need to quit being a bigot and then she's like, oh, but I am because I'm right, you know and, oh, Valeris, right. <laughs> yeah, Valeris right. and that's the whole story, is the two of them Savick giving good advice and Valeris just ignoring it well, that that's a lot of it, and then there's also the Spock dynamic, and how he's relating to both of them right. uh, so that also is a big part of what's going on uh, I'm surprised how much of a jerk Spock is, because um, he's not normally an un an unaware jerk like this. He really kind of poops on on Savick, as McCoy keeps pointing out, and he's just absolutely clueless. Right. And I and, and that doesn't seem like Spock to me. So I think he's a little maybe, out of character. Maybe being near Valeris, he's trying to be extra Vulcan. Huh. I don't maybe. Know. Maybe, but. Uh, I will say that um, the drawing of Valeris uh, mm-hmm. surprised me at first because she's a little a little more meaty than than Kim Cattrall is. Kim Cattrall was always a, a, a very thin, you know, trim lady, and I don't remember her being any different when she played Valeris. And especially when you first see her on page one, Valeris, she looks, you know, buxom. And you know, kind of a little, a little thick, which I thought was kind of inaccurate. But I'm looking at the picture you're talking about. I, I she, she looks pretty thin to me, but okay. <laughs> yeah. So how about that lower left-hand panel? Yeah. Uh, yeah. On page one, where it looks like Savik's left hand is fondling <laughs> Phalaris's, uh chest. 
Yeah. If if Valeris was a little little kid, sure. <laughs> I just thought I'd point out that too. But but in that particular panel, Valeris looks. I mean, she doesn't look fat. She just right. looks, you know, like like a healthy girl, and that's not Kim Cattrall. But I'd be more of the uniforms they're wearing because I don't remember anybody looking incredibly attractive in those uniforms in the movies. Oh, do you? Yeah. Uh, well, they're not flattering costumes. Well, I think they. I think okay. Don't take this the wrong way, but I think it all looks always looks great on the guys. The guys look great in those uh, tunics. Right, right, right. I, I meant. You know, the ladies. In a, in a, the ladies, yeah. yeah. It, it isn't necessarily uh, showing off much. Right. Right. For the ladies. Yeah. Yeah, so I kind of like how it kind of explains a little bit of the uh, shuffling of the decks here mm-hmm. with some of this crew, so I, I did kind of like that. But I, I, thought, I thought the whole Tinian thing, that, that whole little thing going on, that was like, you know, it was like, really? I mean, they were saying, oh, the transporters are useless. And it's like, really? Okay, and, th- and then later on they explain, oh, it's because of the radiation and stuff. But it's like, it just seemed kind of contrived. It's like, a lot of times they, they always make up excuses why the transporters can't work. Mm-hmm. You know, to isolate whoever's going away from the ship. Right. So, I knew they had to do that for the story. It just seemed a little little forced and contrived to me. I could see that. I just... Yeah, I just thought it was kind of, you know, you had to have a little bit of excitement going, so that's cool. And and, and a stressful situation to test the, uh, the 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 two ladies. It's just, yeah, I just thought it was a bit forced. I agree. So did you like the handheld communicator that Savik was using when she had a spacesuit on and she was in the middle of a very time-sensitive situation? Uh, I didn't notice. So looking at the communicator itself? What? Well, why is she using a handheld communicator? They don't have that built into the helmets? It's oh, like, yeah, you would think so, especially if you were out in space. Communicator's not going to really help. Well, yeah, so, <laughs> right, of course, yeah, well, exactly. I mean, now they were on the ship in this case, but right. Um, but right, exactly. It's like, why, I mean, how much How much does it take to build a communicator into a helmet? It's like, keep your hands free. It's like, I don't know. Right, good it point. It seems like they shouldn't have been doing that. And did they do it because... That's what everybody. That's what they think the audience expects to see. And if Probably. you don't, if you're not, if you don't see the good old-fashioned flip communicator, then you're saying, "Hey, uh, she's just talking into dead air." Now, you know, maybe that's what they were doing, but I think they should give the audience a little more credit than that. But yeah, because if they didn't do that, then there'd be guys like us being like, "Oh, they're using the next generation com badges, and this is a cause <laughs> show." <laughs> Well, she she's got a full helmet on. I know. I mean, come on. They should be able to build a radio into the helmet, but whatever. A minor nit. A minor nit. I will agree. Huh. No, I uh like I said, I really wanted to like this issue. Ended up not really caring for it all that much. Yeah. Um I get that that they, you needed to have that tension between them there on the ship, but I didn't understand why he picked Valeris to go with Savic to oh, Kirk. Yeah, Kirk why did Kirk that. do that? Aside well, from that's that's the two main characters in this story, so we got to send them over together. Right. I mean, quite frankly, I was thinking this was such a, a serious situation, and they were sending Valeris over there. I was almost wondering if this was some kind of a rigged up kind of a cadet 
uh, exercise or something. Right. Because, you know, at first I didn't get that it's because of the radiation. Oh, my God, the radiation. That the, the transporters couldn't work and they had to go over in the shuttle. I almost thought it was all set up because, uh, you know, they had to teach Valeris a lesson or something because she's such mm. a biatch. She but, is. Uh, but, no, that isn't what it turned out to be. Nope. It all is what it was. Yeah. As much as I, I think Sp- Scott was uncharacteristically and unexplainably dense and a jerk in this this issue, mm-hmm. I think McCoy is cool as hell. <laughs> so towards the end, uh, at page 23, when Spock says flat out he does not want to discuss his, his relationship with Savick, McCoy just tells him, too damn bad, we're going to talk about it anyway. I love that. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and then I love the... Uh... You know, you're invading my privacy. Oh, really? Kind of the way you mind melded with me and put your cotcher in me. Let's <laughs> let's talk about invasion of privacy there. Right. <laughs> that was good too. A very good comeback. And then I loved it at the end. So he was funny. Uh, so at the near the end, when he's uh, when Spock accuses him of eavesdropping in his discussion with uh, with Savic. Then McCoy comes back and says, "He's an old man, <laughs> and I can't control who can't control his actions anymore." <laughs> the 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 veiled insinuation of incontinence I thought was very funny. Uh, it was good. Yeah, yeah, there were some good lines. McCoy, McCoy had some good stuff to say. Right, and I did kind of like the foreshadowing as far as Star Trek Six when he just says. I got a feeling that she's going to give us one hell of a ride one day. You know, I assume that that was a foreshadowing to Six, that she does indeed give take them for a ride in that movie. Yeah. Yep. Villainous. Damned villainous. Yeah, I guess the last thing I just want to say is how they left things hanging between uh, Spock and Sabak, relationship-wise. Right. Now, uh, I guess, I assume, based on what you said in the past that uh, obviously there's probably some great novels that took mm-hmm. up this topic and explained how they got back together again and, and maybe the same novel explained how they eventually got they got married, right? Yeah, they got married. So maybe that's all explained. It's just I think it kind of left kind of a, a character cliffhanger. It's like, oh, that sucks. <laughs> you know, she's going off to wherever and he's staying you know, on the Enterprise, is like, oh, that's, oh that kind of sucks. Right. But, but I guess the 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 daughter had to fly, didn't she? Yeah, so that she can come back as the mom. That's weird. Yeah, Uki. <laughs> What's your favorite word? Uki. It is Uki. Yeah. <laughs> but she had to become the independent woman. Right, right. That she was destined to be. So this this actually is a good excuse for the break. Right. Yep. So... And, you know, I, I, in regards to those novels, she's captain of a, um, of a ship that's mm-hmm. an O'Berth type starship, which is okay. the same one as the Tinin here. Okay, yeah. So when I was seeing this, I was like, oh, wow, they're going to actually tie in her leaving the Enterprise to captain this ship. Because um, I couldn't remember what the name of, of the ship she ultimately will captain. Mm-hmm. Um, which I'm still not convinced that this might this might not be that one, but no. I mean it is kind of a coincidence that's the exact same class of starship that I know she'll ultimately be commanding. Yeah, and she saved the ship when I gave it to her. Yeah, exactly. There you go. 
Yeah, just jump from lieutenant commander to captain. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> Boom, you're there. I've seen like I've it? seen I've seen bigger jumps, you know, from cadet to captain. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right, well normally we do expanded universe, but because these were specials, any month that they came out we'll cover during the normal Taz episodes. Right. So, we'll be back next week where we're going to cover uh, the Next Generation special number one and a Deep Space Nine special called Lightstorm. So I don't think it's actually, I think it might be episode zero or issue zero, but it's kind of like a Malibu's version of uh, specials. Cool. So, all right, well, that's it, and uh, we'll be back next week. Until then, go watch some uh, Into Darkness again. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us, everyone. See you next time on The Review. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music, stories, and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes. Or friend us on Facebook at first name, ST Comic, second name, Book Review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Did you get the